Will you please make your way with me in your Bibles this morning to what I'm sure is a very familiar passage for all of us this time of year, the second chapter of Luke's Gospel, where we are going to be looking together at verses 1 through 7 at the birth of our Saviors. Luke 2, 1 through 7, you can find that, on pa- that passage on page 1005 in your pew Bibles. One of the questions that I always like to think through at this time of year and that I've challenged us to think through is, why is it that we celebrate Christmas with such joy and fervor? And it is almost tangible this time of year, isn't it? The joy, the celebration, the singing. What is it about this promised son that is so worthy of our joy and our celebration? What is, about, what is it about this remarkable, humble birth that we are celebrating this very morning? What is it that makes it so remarkable, so extraordinary? The fulfillment of, the, of this promise is one that is both remarkable for its humility as well as for the joy that it invokes in the hearts of the people of God. Christmas is a time that is, and indeed ought to be, marked by its joy. Beloved, is it a joyful time of the year for you? If your family is anything like mine throughout the years, then I trust that this time of year is one that is usually marked with the joyful anticipation, not only in our own hearts, but certainly in the eyes of our children, in the eyes of those who surround us in this life as we prepare to celebrate that day that we've designated in the church as Christmas, the day in which we remember together the birth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ into this world. And again, truly for the Christian, this ought to be, it certainly is a most wonderful time of the year. It should be celebrated. When we realize what we've been given in the incarnation, the coming of Almighty God in flesh into this broken, fallen world, we ought to be those who cannot suppress our rejoicing. We ought to come to some understanding of what real joy really is. We think of the birth of any child and we rightly celebrate it. We've celebrated a few of them this past year, and certainly we anticipate more to come in the coming years. It's not prophecy, I'm just guessing. Every birth into this world introduces us to another soul that will never die. But the birth we celebrate on Christmas was that and so much more. It was the birth of the long-anticipated Messiah. The coming of the King of Kings to establish His unshakable kingdom on the earth. It was this birth that brought with it life in the very midst of death. It was this birth that fulfilled so many of the precious promises of Almighty God in Scripture. It was this birth that had been anticipated ever since the promise in the garden that the seed of the woman would come and ultimately crush the head of the serpent. It was this birth 
that would usher in real rest for the wearied people of God. It was this birth that would rend the hazy shadows with the particular and glorious light once and for all of those who see it for what it is by the grace of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. Christmas is and rightly should be a time marked by joy and joyful celebration and real present hope when we properly understand that was all that was involved with this birth. However, I must emphasize this morning that for this celebration to truly consist of genuine joy, of true hope, of fervent rest, then we must properly understand the circumstances surrounding this birth. And certainly that includes the humility that so encompassed it. To look at this one dimensionally, to only see the joy associated with Christmas as so many of us do this time of year, is really only to see but one piece of the whole. And any joy that comes to us as a result of a, a shallow understanding of the birth of Jesus Christ is quite simply a superficial, a temporary joy to say the least. If our joy this time of year is to be genuine, then I think we must understand the why behind the humility surrounding that first Christmas. Beloved, have you ever thought about it? You know, humility is something that seems so easy to lose sight of, especially at this time of year as we carry on the various traditions that have been handed down to us over the years. And I'm not trying to trample on those traditions. We, we live those traditions in the Altman house, right? We, I'm, not, I'm not trying to attack the traditions, but one hardly thinks of our Christmas celebrations and would associate them with a word like humility. We think of bright lights. We think of Glitz and glamour, we think of shiny packages, we think of loud music being piped onto our sidewalks and into our grocery stores and all over the place in our towns. We think of the trees and the choirs and the food, enough of it to feed small armies. We think of all of these things, and when we try to associate a word like humility with Christmas something usually gets a little bit lost in the translation. We either ignore the lack of humility often associated with our observances of Christmas or we simply consider it at a very surface level and then we get it all wrong. What do I mean by that? Well, one of the ways we often get it wrong is in our consideration of the raw humility surrounding this whole scene that takes place, that unfolds in history at the moment of Christ's birth. You know, many people speak of the humility which surrounded his birth. Even an unchurched individual, with no real understanding of the depth involved in the incarnation, would easily recognize that Jesus was said to have been born in a stable, and laid in a manger. Because there was no room for his parents in the inn. And I would argue that the chances are, most if not all of us know this, and so we think that we understand something of the humility of Christmas. 
the humility of Christ's birth. But we never really dig into it. We think that his humility existed to simply stand in a sort of stark contrast to the world with all of its pomp and all of its splendor which surrounds its own royalty. And so accepting that, we never move towards any deeper meaning behind the humble beginnings of Christ in this world. The world would have done it one way, and so, of course, Jesus would do it contrary to the way the world would do it. And that sounds good, right? Sounds easy. Nothing too difficult for us to grasp here. It's simple, really. So let's get back to decking the halls, to wrapping and tearing open shiny gifts, and pouring some more into eggnog. Let the children sing Christmas hymns and recite messianic promises. Let the choir sing and let's just enjoy another Christmas. But beloved, I'm afraid that it's really not that simple. There is joy to be had because of the birth of Jesus Christ, to be sure. Christ's birth was truly good news. It still is good news, the greatest news. That should, ever re- that should resonate and fill the heart of every believer with fervent joy and hope. But you see, there's more to understanding Christmas than just the good news. There's also bad news. And try as you might to enjoy Christmas apart from anything like bad news, I would make the argument to you this morning that until you really come to grips with the bad news, you can never really enjoy the good news. Jesus Christ was born wearing the flesh of a man. He suffered from the very time of his entrance into the womb of his mother, and he continued to do so throughout his entire lifetime, right up until the time it further intensified during his final hours. He was born, quite simply put, to die. All of it because of sin. Not just sin in general, my sin and your sin. The sin of the world, all of it contributed to the necessity of this extraordinarily humble birth of the king of all kings into a world that despised him from the very beginning. A world that the son of God willingly laid aside his unfathomable and majestic glory to come and save. Beloved, it's my hope to point you this morning towards an even deeper appreciation of Christmas by first showing you the bad news to show you very clearly the true glory and the real joy behind the good news. So if you would, follow along with me in your Bibles this morning as we read together Luke's account of the birth of Christ in Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. Hear now the word of our Lord. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, 
to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. This is the word of our Lord. May he always bless the reading of it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we're grateful to go to your word this morning. I pray that you would clear our hearts and our minds of the many things that distract us, not only this time of year, but indeed every day uh, that we live in the brokenness of this world. I pray, Father, that you would give us clear sight into the glory of Jesus Christ and all that it means for us, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. There are so many things here for us to consider this morning, and as is always the case, we're going to be limited by time to just a couple of them. It's always my hope that we would spend some time meditating upon these rich truths and, uh, that we find here with our own families, with our own people in the days to come. And as I've mentioned to you already, we need to hear the bad news about this birth, and we need to come to grips with it before we can ever really come to the place where we embrace or rejoice in the really good news. In other words, the weight of the good news is sort of set up first by the bad news. When we see how clearly, when we see clearly how bad the bad news is, then the good news just becomes much richer. And to do that this morning, we must focus first on the real reason standing behind the overwhelming humility that surrounded the birth of Jesus Christ. I mentioned that the humiliation and the suffering of Jesus Christ really were something that began in earnest at his conception. He bore it all his days on earth. He was born to a mother who was with child outside of the normal, familiar blessing of the fruit of marriage. She was now with child, not from knowing any man, including her soon-to-be husband, Joseph. Rather, we're told in Matthew's account that the Holy Spirit came upon her and she conceived. We need not speculate as to exactly what that entailed. It's enough for us to know that she was now carrying a child who would be true man, that is, born of a woman, born of the Virgin Mary, and true God, conceived of the Holy Spirit. And of course, necessarily so. To accomplish what he was born to accomplish, Jesus had to be both. He had to be true man because only as true man, only as man, only a man could pay the penalty for our sin. Only a perfect man could stand in as a substitutionary sacrifice who would atone for the sin of mankind that began in earnest with Adam and continues even now through all of his progeny. He also had to be true God. He had to endure the wrath of God being poured out upon him for our sin, for his entire life, especially at the cross, and yet remain without sin until the bitter end of it. And so we must think of the humility that surrounded him from the beginning, his mother was the one to give birth to the promised son of David, who of course would be a far more glorious, far, far more powerful king than David himself ever was. 
Yet you can imagine that when people looked upon her condition, rather than bowing or even smiling before the mother of true royalty, they more than likely averted their eyes from hers. Probably they even looked away with contempt. You can imagine even Joseph feeling more shame and contempt than the pride that would anticipate that they would that most would anticipate as they awaited the birth of any child let alone one who would redeem them from their sin and misery then there's the difficulty of travel that would have have to take place because of this providential decree of Caesar Augustus everyone must journey to their hometown to be registered now for Joseph and Mary that meant traveling a most difficult course at the very height of her pregnancy. I think many people have never really considered what this journey would have consisted of. You know, we have and we're all too often content with those romantic versions of the nativity scenes that we've grown up with and grown so accustomed to, with Mary dressed in her soft, comfortable-looking clothing, riding on the back of a cute, fuzzy donkey, led by her humble but somewhat proud husband, Joseph, through the the starry countryside. It all seems so inviting, so very comfortable. In truth, the Bible presents Mary and Joseph as being people of very little means. You know, Jesus was born into poverty. When his parents would present him in the temple, They would not offer the sacrifice of one having means, a year-old lamb, along with a pigeon and a turtle dove. But they offered the sacrifice of the poor, two turtle doves or two pigeons. They were poor. They lacked means. So the truth is they probably did not own a donkey to bear the pregnant mother of our Lord upon its warm, cozy back which means that this trip needed to be covered on foot. So on foot, with Mary being in the late stages of pregnancy, they would have left Nazareth, which was about 1,200 feet above sea level. And they probably would have taken the route through the Jordan Valley because they had to avoid Samaria. And so they would have descended to about 800 feet below sea level at Jericho, which would have covered roughly 80 straight miles of steady decline. From there, they would have had to climb 3,600 feet back up to Jerusalem, all in the span of about 15 miles. So you can imagine what that leg of the journey would have been like for even two healthy, unburdened young people without the burden of a late-stage pregnancy. There had to have been a tremendous amount of suffering for this poor mother as well as stress for the child in her womb. From there, they still had another five miles before they would reach Bethlehem where, of course, their journey would not end in the comfort of an inn for the refreshing of weary travel but in a stable packed with all of the worn-out, sweaty animals of the many other travelers along with their filth. 
And this child would be wrapped up in dirty, travel-worn clothes and placed in a trough, a manger used to feed the animals. Not only is this an inconceivably humble scene for the King of Kings, the long-anticipated Messiah, to be born into this world, but it was an arduous journey undoubtedly filled with struggle. And then we consider the world's reaction to this humble birth. How does the world react to the birth of the mighty Savior King? Well, Herod gets wind of it. And feeling threatened, he initiates the unthinkable task of slaughtering all the male children of the region to try and thwart any reign of this so-called future king. Can you even imagine the weeping and the wailing in the land among God's people as they lamented the heartache of once again losing their beloved children because of a wicked edict? Suffering. Bloodshed. Humility. It really doesn't fit with our pretty cozy nativity scenes, does it? There's not a peaceful, sort of serene, cute little stable with a couple of clean, fuzzy, almost domestic-looking animals. There's not nicely clothed, cozy-looking, adoring parents doting over their child who himself is just sort of glowing as he coos and smiles. Beloved, the harsh reality is there was suffering. Why? Because Jesus came to restore a broken world, not celebrate a perfectly comfortable one. There was filth. There was exhaustion. And so we have to ask the question, why? Could not Almighty God have sent His Christ with all the angelic host of heaven upon this scene of human history and simply taken what was rightfully His? Could he not have come and simply gathered together his church as a a mother hen does her chicks and safely placed them all under the protection of the hem of his majestic garments? Why such humility? Why such suffering? Why did there need to be pain, not only for mother and child alike, but really for everyone who was in any way tied to this very birth? Well, the answer to that question or questions like these, beloved, is the bad news. The answer is no. You understand? The answer is no. He could not have come in any other way. Jesus was not entering human history to gather an already pure and faithful and spotless church to himself. He did not come to establish his glorious reign here on earth with might and power and the splendor certainly do his office. He came for something else. Something that had to happen first. The justice and the righteousness of Almighty God demanded it. He came first and foremost to save his people from their sin. 
Do you understand? Beloved, the bad news is that Jesus Christ coming in such humility, his lifetime of suffering, especially at the end, all of it was brought about because the thing that necessitated that suffering, that humility, was that it was the price that must be paid because of our sin. In the Heidelberg Catechism, we see this truth beautifully outlined beginning in question 36. After establishing the necessity of his being true man and yet true God in question 35, the Catechism then asks this question in 36. What benefit do you receive from the holy conception and birth of Christ? And the answer? That he is our mediator. And with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sin wherein I was conceived. That's why Jesus Christ came. This is the reason for the incarnation to even take place. Our sin had to be dealt with in a way that reflected both the amazing grace of Almighty God and His inconceivable mercy while simultaneously satisfying His perfect justice with regards to our sin. Our sin must be punished. It cannot just be overlooked. It cannot just be swept under the proverbial rug. God's justice demands punishment for our sin. And as a result, the King of glory, Jesus Christ, came in absolute humility. And he lived a life of suffering because he came to satisfy the justice of God regarding our sin. Beloved, do you see it? It's our sin that caused his humiliation. It is our sin that caused such suffering that did not simply begin and end at the cross, but from the very outset of his birth. The bad news, beloved, is that this is the horrific nature of our sin. This is the depth of our own depravity that we witness and the humility that surrounded the birth of the Son of God. Do you understand? It's why I detest, <laughs> the longer I've been in ministry, it's why I detest cozy romantic versions of the Christmas story. Because I don't believe that they create joy, but they stifle it by robbing this story of its true glory. We miss the love of God in it if we try to make it more comfortable than it is. Do you see? Listen to question 37 of the Catechism. More clarity. What do you understand by the word suffered? The Catechism is here speaking of the wording of the Apostles' Creed that Jesus suffered. Listen to the answer. That all of the time that he lived on earth, but especially at the end of his life, he bore in body and soul the wrath of God against the sin of the whole human race. In order that by his suffering, as the only atoning sacrifice, he might redeem our body and soul from everlasting damnation and obtain for us the grace of God. 
Beloved, that suffering again, the cause of which is our sin, the inability of every man, woman, and child to ever shake off the corrupted nature we inherited from our father Adam, ran from his birth, really from his conception, all the way through his death. And question 40 says, why was it necessary for Christ to suffer death? Because the justice and truth of God required that satisfaction for our sins could be made in no other way than by the death of the Son of God. Jesus Christ was born to suffer and to die because of our sin. So when we consider the humility and the suffering surrounding his birth and his life, it's our sin that comes into the light. He did not simply come into the come in in this way to stand in humble opposition to the world's way of doing things, right? There's some truth to that. We know God's ways are certainly not man's ways, but it's not at all the full picture. Our sin necessitated this deep humility, this suffering. And that's the bad news. He did not come in splendor and in glory with his flashing sword and the unveiling of his mighty arm because first he had to cover us with his perfect righteous blood. He had to purchase us through his enduring the wrath of God being poured out upon him because of our sin from the very beginning of his life to its terribly violent end. And when we consider the humility of Christmas, we must start there. With the bad news, our sin and its effect upon this world that we live in. But that's not the end of the story. It's a celebration because Jesus came for this. He was perfectly fitted for our salvation through this. Which leads us not just to the good news, but really the greatest news to ever be uttered by any lips, human or angelic. A little bit further into this chapter, we hear those words uttered by the angels to the shepherds. Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring to you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you. You will find him wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. Beloved, it's the good news. The good news is that he came. Despite what it involved, despite what we in our sin have caused, Jesus Christ came to save us from our sin, the very sin which necessitated his suffering. What love is this? He willingly laid aside the glory that was his from the beginning. He so condescended, that is, he put on flesh like ours, sin accepted, so that he could suffer. He came for the express purpose of being sacrificed in our place, taking our just deserts upon himself even in his innocence, that he might cover our sin with his perfection in the sight of Almighty God. Beloved, if that's not the best news you have ever received, then 
I have to beg you to look a little closer at the bad news. We deserve all that Jesus Christ himself received because of the, because of the righteous wrath of God against our sin. We earned it. We deserved it. And yet God gives us his grace through the birth, the suffering, and ultimately the atoning death of his son. Now maybe you think this morning, I don't know, Steve, that all sounds great, but how do we really know? How do I really know that that's what's going on here? How can I be comforted that Jesus Christ came in such inconceivable humility to save me, little old me, from my sins? Look at the sovereign hand of God in all of this. Beloved, don't let his precious providence be lost on you here in the Christmas story. History is going somewhere. And Almighty God is directing it as he wills. It was no fluke that Mary and Joseph had to make this arduous trek from Nazareth to Bethlehem. It was not mere chance that drove this decree to be issued from Caesar Augustus. The place of his birth had been prophesied and promised. We heard it this morning in the prophet Micah, did we not? Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. It's not chance that Jesus Christ is linked to King David. As we know, he had to be the son of David who is set upon his throne for eternity. In fact, beloved, the whole of Scripture is sort of craning its neck, if you will, to this precise moment in history here in the filth of the stable surrounded by an exhausted mother and father surrounded by lowly stinking animals is the seed of the woman come to crush the head of the serpent here in this crude uncomfortable manger lays the perfectly fitted sacrifice of almighty God to atone for the sin of the world Here is the sacrificial lamb foreshadowed in the Passover. Do you understand? Here is the answer to that perpetual question of Isaac, the son of Abraham. Father, I see the wood. I see the fire. I see the knife. But where, Father, where is the lamb? Here is the hope of every wearied priest soiled in the blood of the never-ending animal sacrifices which flowed continually down the altar of the tabernacle and the temple, the sacrificial lamb who would end the need of perpetual sacrifice. And here he is in a trough in Bethlehem. Here is the only hope. Here is the true joy of Christmas. Here is the gift of Almighty God to His people which speaks of such love that we cannot even begin to wrap our finite minds around it. It's too glorious. Here He is before you, cloaked in humility, seasoned through suffering, wearing the penalty of our sin from the moment of His birth until His death. 
Beloved, we see in this passage that God is sovereign and he is a God of sweet, sweet providence. And I want you to understand this morning, nothing could stop this moment in time. Do you believe that? We see his perfect justice being met out against our sin and the suffering and the humiliation of his only begotten son and nothing gets in the way of it. We see his unfathomable mercy as he reaches out to us in his grace and covers us in the perfect, righteous perfection of Jesus Christ. We see his incomprehensible love for us as his own children in the birth of this holy child who came to suffer and die that we might have life eternally. Do you see the good news, beloved? It is this gift truly that fuels our celebrations at Christmas and every day after. If you're trying in vain to find joy this Christmas and anything else, then I want to tell you, you are trying to be satisfied and nourished with garbage, with rubbish, though the king's table has been set before you. There is no greater joy in this life than to understand the bad news surrounding his humiliation so that you can live as one who understands and who basks in the great, glorious good news of his coming. Despite all the bad news we have caused in our sin, beloved, what is your source of joy this Christmas? May it never be anything less than Jesus in whom, as the hymn says, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. That's what we celebrate. Amen? Let's pray.